What's up? What's up? What's up? Podcast world. This life ain't for everybody. Another episode coming your way. Thank you all so much again for the subscriptions, for the ratings, the reviews. We're humbled by it. We love it. Hope you all love it too. Our sister podcast, The Foul Life, is performing very well. We have a couple other podcasts we're getting ready to launch, so be ready for that. We also are going to keep telling you about that new cookbook series we're getting ready to come out with, the Provider Series. We're so excited about that. So keep that in mind as you tour or navigate the world wide web during this time of quarantine today's episode of this life ain't for everybody is brought to you by our friends at jack daniels the most american company you could possibly think of enjoy it responsibly lynchburg tennessee jack daniels has so many different varieties of their sour mash their tennessee whiskey they are an american icon if you've ever been to lynchburg tennessee you know how special it is. If you haven't, I strongly advise you to do so. Land in Nashville. Take a little hour, hour and 20-minute drive. Take the Jack Daniels Distillery Tour and just learn the lifestyle, the culture of Jack Daniels and what it means to America and our entire country as a whole. But again, enjoy it responsibly. Thank you so much for all the support that you give us, Jack Daniels. We truly appreciate it, and we are humbled to be part of the Jack Daniels mission to bring people together and to love one another. Today's episode, we are going to talk to the better half of John David Stanley who you've met on the Foul Life podcast, we are talking to his wife, Allie Beck, who is coming from us from the biggest state in the union. What's up, Allie? Texas girl right now, born in Alberta, living in Texas. That's right. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Heck yeah, I'm so glad you're here. And I was like... um, Wait a minute. I'm just now noticing what's behind you right now. Really? What? Is that mine? Or is that somebody else's? It could be. It's, It's unspoken for, so... Oh, I don't think it is unspoken for. I want that one. <laughs> Dang, look at that. Hold that up. Can you hold it up? It's on a canvas right now because it's actually not done. Um, but I could probably just bring the computer a little bit. No, closer. I don't want you to mess with that. I, I'm just excited seeing the... seeing the. I'm going to take a picture of it real quick. And I'm going to... And then I'm just going to blow up this picture in my phone. Because those mallards look so legit. Dang, they look good. Thank you. Wow. They're not done. They're, they're on their way right now. I'm still getting used to painting waterfowl and it's been, it's been totally different in the best way. So that is really cool. Like you're, uh, wait a minute. Whose piece is that? I just, I just started painting it. Who you were doing one for Tom Sabini with Widgeon on it. Um, yeah. So this one, I just, to be totally honest, um, I feel like I'm the strongest in my black and whites. And I feel like there's like a huge connection there for me with the black and whites. Um, but it gets a little, like definitely not boring, but sort of just tedious, like overly tedious. Um, when you're doing like a huge black and white, piece for me, at least like every single inch of the canvas is focused on these tiny little like micro details. And so, especially when you're doing it from a reference photo, you're just sort of like looking at the photo, going back to the canvas, back and forth and back and forth. And there's no real like major flow of creation that happens for me when I'm doing that. Like I love it, but it's, it's very tedious. And then these acrylic pores that I'm into, I mean, you virtually have I mean, to say you have control is like not really true. It's, you know, you can, you can be very good at them and very skilled and have like an idea of how you want them to look, but there's this total let go of control that you have to sort of lean into. So I've been doing these pores, like the bear behind me and, uh, and like the birds. And so I do the pores and then I just honestly put the canvas up for like two weeks. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's five minutes, but sometimes it's two weeks or more. And I just wait for it to come to me, what should be on the canvas. And then I get this like total explosive creative thing and I can't leave it alone then. And so I get to do the black and whites and I get to be tedious, but I still get that intense creative vibe. So I love, how, I love how you, I love how you 
use the word intense or intensity when you're talking about painting. Like that's what it takes. Like when you see your paintings, you like the passion in them is so killer. And then, you know, we're going to get back to your roots of this, where if people listen to John David's last episode on the foul life, we learned from Allie that her painting began out of a need of, of her revenue and financial status at that time in her life. She could not afford correct me if I'm wrong, Allie, but you could not afford art to decorate the house and make it more homely. So you started to just, create your own art which has turned into this absolute like perfection of art that I'm looking at from the fish the fish are undeniably you know just fantastic but now these ducks like you're onto something there the bear's beautiful you you can't just pick up a paintbrush and be like oh I was given this god-given talent or you can't pick up a guitar and play like you know Slash or Jimmy Page or some of the greatest guitarists out there it takes a lot of practice but is there is that premature for me to assume that you can't be given or born with a painting town? I know people are probably born with artistic DNA inside of them, but can you really just come out of the womb and do this kind of stuff? Obviously you can as a baby, but are you born yeah. with it? I think some people can for sure. Um, but you know, with that said, I have a lot of people that say to me like, Oh my God, I could never do what you do. Um, you know, I, I could never, paint like that or draw like that or whatever it is that we're talking about when it, you know, when referencing creativity. And for me, I'm, I'm like, you know, anybody can do it. It's so much of it is what you were just saying. It's, it's dedication. And it's, I think you have to enjoy it to, to get to a certain place with it, but so much of it is just believing in yourself because I mean, we live in a world where you can go on your computer and you can YouTube. I mean, literally hours, endless hours of tutorials on how to become a better artist. You know, there are free workshops, there's cheap workshops, it's, it's one of those things where some people are definitely born with it and they just get it, man. Like they just pick it up and they just get it. My dad is that guy. My dad is like insanely talented with sketching and has never even taken an art class. Um, for me, I'm somewhere in between where like, I, I do have those abilities, but I have to work really, really hard to constantly be improving my craft. And if you saw my first painting, I, it's like, it's so funny to me now. It's laughable now. And I was so proud of it when I first did it. So you're right. It's, but I do think it's a mix of both. Um, real quick, while we're on this subject of these ducks behind you, I want to come like, I, we've talked about myself and commissioning you to do some t-shirt art when we're going to get back to what you were just saying, but keep this in mind. I want a painting done of a Traeger grill open lid with the color of what you would expect to be on inside when the lids close. So now kind of a heated element kind of convection. And I want, I want three to four full body ducks in there or geese plucked legs, breast up, you know, kind of like a skin textured with a, with a, uh, you know, a sear on the skin, crispy skin, and just kind of show that, that art of the cook. Like, you know how a lot of artists are, I mean, a lot of cooks are artists, but I want art of the actual art of cooking. So I would like to commission you to do that. So I'm, the, I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, if that one's not mine behind me, I'd like to buy that one when that's, when that's ready, but I would really like to get the cooked one too. So let's start talking about that. Absolutely. Don't, I mean, wouldn't that be kind of cool to see that a, a Traeger grill full of ducks? Yeah. And it's something that I've never thought of or, you know, never painted before. And I love that. I love switching it up. I didn't think that I would love that, to be honest, when everybody started saying to me like, Oh, once you start painting waterfowl, I was like, well, you know, I'm not a waterfowl artist. I'm a fish artist. And then I just, I started and turns out I really, really like it. So. Well, yeah. um, so when you're starting this endeavor back when you were, when you're in Alberta and you have your kids and you're going through some hard times or um, I don't even know if that's fair to say, but you're not, you're not, you're not bringing in a lot of money at this point. This has become something to where are you, are you self teaching yourself or are you just dabbling in it? Or are you like going into full tutorial mode on YouTube and, and figuring out how to paint is your dad coming over and giving you some tips and tactics or are you self taught by the, at this time? Um, again, it's kind of a combination. Um, so I started out just really, really simple. Um, I wanted to just do a painting for my youngest son. His first birthday was coming up and I can afford like, you know, your basic kind of few toys and stuff, but, but things were really, really hard on me back then. It was, it was a couple years of 
really uh, intense living, we'll say. And I learned so much and just became such a different person. I'm so grateful for the hard times because they made me who I am. And, you know, they, they brought me painting too. And, um, so it started out, my very first painting was, yeah, I had sketched a lot with my dad in the past, but I'd honestly never even touched a paint. Um, one of my really good friends had learned that she kind of, she was self-teaching herself and how to paint. And, uh, so she came over and kind of said to me, you know, we should give this a whirl and we'll do it together. And so I painted something for my little boy and then um, I painted, you know, just a few things for the house because it just, it was so empty and bare at that time. I mean, I was 20 years old and living on my own for a few years already. And I ran into some circumstances where I was just as broke as you could possibly imagine with, you know, a one-year-old child and a baby on the way. So I wanted it to feel like a home. I grew up in such a beautiful, loving, amazing home. And I wanted that for my kids. And that was just one small way that I could start a stepping stone of getting there. And um, so once that started to happen and I started making art that I was really proud of for my home, Christmas was coming up and I could not afford gifts for my family, but they were just endlessly supporting me. I mean, they had my back, like no matter which way I started to lean, there was a pillar there to just hold me up. And so I, for Christmas, I painted everyone in my family, their favorite musician. So I painted, um, Eric Clapton and BB King. Do you remember the riding with the King where Eric Clapton's driving the car and BB's in the back playing his guitar, painted that for my dad. Um, and I painted Tom Petty for my oldest brother and Bob Marley for my youngest brother. And I actually can't remember what I painted for my other brother, but it was just, yeah, it just, it just started happening. Like I was then all of a sudden creating gifts for people. And so then, um, fast forward a couple of years, um, I had someone, a really good friend of ours, George Cook just saw something in me with fly fishing that he just really wanted to help me out and kind of get me moving. He saw my intense passion for fly fishing. And so he wound up introducing me to some just amazing women in fly fishing, like really big names. And I didn't even really know why at the moment, you know, I was like, why are you being so kind to me? Like, I, I, how am I going to repay you for this? Like, I mean, to sort of name drop on how big it was for me, I had just really started following April Vokey and was like enamored with this powerful female force in the outdoor industry that was just shamelessly herself. And uh, he introduced me to her and she was so kind and everyone that he introduced me to was awesome. So as a way of thanking him, I painted a fish that he had caught with John David and it just, uh, it just took off after that. It went from, you know, trying to decorate my home to honestly just giving back and just creating. Wait a minute. I'm not trying to interrupt you, but where you, you are, you're, you're doing the artwork of the musicians and the, and the singers for your family for Christmas gifts. At this point, you're not into the fish yet, but are you fishing? You're fishing at this time or you're getting into it a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I grew up just conventional gear fishing with my family, um, very recreationally. I mean, no one in my family is really an angler. Nobody fly fishes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up very much outdoors. I grew up, uh, a neighbor's just one range road down from us, um, had a little hobby farm and she taught horseback riding lessons. And so I spent every waking second at her place and, uh, really, I grew up outside, but I didn't really get into hunting or fishing until, um, well, I didn't even, I didn't even really have much of a desire to get into it or know what I was missing until I was 22, I think was when I decided like, I really want to get into the outdoor life and kind of started finding my way there. So no, I mean, I had caught, you know, walleye and pike basically and a couple trout at that point with conventional gear. And, uh, and so I, I really didn't start taking the painting aspect of, of fishing seriously until I was a serious fisherman. 
And are you at this time in your life, when you say serious fishermen, you have influence and inspiration from other women in the outdoors. Are you traveling a bunch? Are you financially strapped to the point to where you really can't go far from home? To, you're just staying right around where you live and you're, and you're learning how to th- you use a fly rod and match the hatch. And, and you're, you're starting to become obsessed just right around your, where you're living at. Um, so like, uh, when I first started, well, yeah, I'm just trying to put together the timeline of, of oh, when, sure. or have you, you, when did you start fishing? Is it right when you started painting kind of? So, okay. So yeah, it's actually kind of funny. Like it's like two converging, um, paths. So, um, I started doing the paintings for my family as a way of giving back. And then, um, shortly after that, I was actually on a holiday in British Columbia with a friend and, um, it was kind of a silly holiday. He just invited the kids and I on uh, his family reunion. So we just went into the Okanagan and just went to his family reunion. And they were so amazing. These people, I had never met people like them. They were so much fun. And his three uncles were really into, for me at least, they were, they were anglers, um, probably just, you know, rec- recreational anglers, look, anglers looking back. But um, at the time, that was like the most serious fisherman that I had really met. And I, I saw them fly casting. And to be honest, it just completely captivated me. It reminded me of... Do you remember that lottery commercial where the audio is just everybody losing their mind because they just won the lottery and, and the video is just these guys standing in a stream and it's just so peaceful and, and they're just, they're just casting away and all you can hear for noise is them losing it, finding out that they've won the lottery. And that for some reason, it's so funny that this commercial was so profound for me, but to me, it just grabbed me and it was like, that's it. Like you spend your whole life trying to make money and be somebody. And for what you win the lottery and you just want to be in a river. You just want to go. And that's peace. Like there it is. That's what you do when you win the lottery, you stand in a river. And so here I am at this family reunion where I know no one. And there's this older group of gentlemen fishing away and casting away. And I think they sort of noticed that I was going through, you know, some difficult times and I had two very, very little babies with me. And they just said, we're going to take care of these kids. Here's a fly rod. Here's a bobber. Here's a couple nymphs. Here's roughly how you do it. What you're going to do is you're going to go out into the stream, float the bobber down. When it goes down, just lift your arm as hard as you can and just keep doing it until you catch a fish. And I'm like, okay, I guess, I guess. And I just had no self-confidence at all. But I went down and they're all standing on the bank, kind of watching down. And I can see they've got my kids and they're watching me. And this insane wave of peace hits me the minute I get in the water. And I fished and I fished and I fished and I didn't even care if the bobber went down. And lo and behold, it did. And I hooked a trout and lost it immediately because I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) But um, after that, it was just, there was something like a visceral reaction that happened where I needed, I needed to know how to do it. I needed to, to make it sort of, um, you know, one of the main, main aspects of my life. And um, it wasn't even... I'm going to say two months later that I met John David and he's a guide. And, uh, so he was really able to kind of help me get into that spot that I wanted to be in. It was really, really cool how it all worked out. So, and then I met George and then I did the the fish painting. So it's, it's, it's definitely, it's kind of like two, two paths that went side by side with painting and fishing. Yeah. It's kind of killer. So besides the, the, the peaceful part and the serenity of a stream and a Creek and a fly fishing body of water. What are some of the 
other divergence or some of the other tie-ins that you could maybe associate with having a brush in your hand. One of them would be for me is when I mess up, I throw my rod as far as I can. Do you ever turn around, just huck your brush across the and hit it in the wall, and then there's a big splatter of paint there, and you're just like, Ugh! like, does that ever happen? Do you do both with because with a fly rod, I've been as frustrated as I've ever been in the outdoors, right? Me too. But me too. I have been at the point where I have legitimately considered just snapping the rod over my knee, especially with casting. I wanted to be so good so fast. And when it wasn't working out, yeah, I wanted to snap it. But I usually just don't. I usually just kind of get up and walk away and take five. Um, so no, I haven't, I have, I reach a point with almost every painting where, I mean, John David can tell you firsthand, I want to set the thing on fire. And I've even threatened to do it a million times. I, the bass behind me only a week ago, I was like, I'm going to light this thing on fire and never look back. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't. Um, but I would say for me, um, there, there's sort of two different energies. Um, but, but for me, when I'm fly fishing a lot of time, I've actually heard some artists talk trash about this. And so that's okay. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. But, um, a lot of people say it's kind of messed up to like go out fly fishing with the intention of, of taking photos and catching beautiful fish. And like, you're sort of expecting something from the resource that you're going to get this beautiful photo and you're going to get to go home and paint it. Um, and it's, it's certainly not the reason that I go out and fish. It's not even close, but man, I will tell you when I catch a really big fish or, or a really beautiful fish or somebody near me does, it is every bit as much of the enjoyment for me is, is almost 50, 50 when I get to like get, right in the water. We, we don't really do like the grip and grin lifting photos anymore. It's more just, um, like these really amazing creative photos. But I don't understand. I don't understand the mindset of what, wh who, who are they to judge what your reasoning is for fishing? Like, well, I don't, I think, I think I, like, you're still, res you're still respecting the resource and you're still putting the yes. fish back. But even if you were to go out and keep a fish and kill it and eat it, you're still respecting the resource and sustainability. Absolutely are. Yeah. So I don't understand yeah. if you're, if you are able to give back through art, the, the, the beauty and the, the, everything that goes into what a wild fish truly stands for. And the, you talk about a life or a voyage or a story, then, you know, go be a fish that travels a river system or a salmon that, that spawns and, and travels up and does everything that they do on their runs uh, to be able to capture that in art and to give back is I don't understand that, that why anybody would ever question that. Well, I think it's just a mindset thing. And I think until somebody, you know, maybe shares their opinion um, that, you know, differs from theirs, maybe it's just sort of a closed mindset. of like, oh, no, fly fishing and art are two very different things. And you don't ever just go out fly fishing so that you can, you know, get something I think it's probably social media driven. You know, people are like, it's so messed up to go out and take, you know, all these pictures of every fish that you catch and plaster them on social media. And I mean, that's, that's a whole different conversation, but I feel like with art, for me, at least exactly what you were saying, it, it is for me a way of giving back. And, and I've had people come to me and that have never fished in their life. And they say to me, I've never realized how beautiful a fish is. Like you have made me, I don't even like fish. And I want one of your paintings in my home because I never realized how beautiful they are. They're stunning. And I'm like, that's what it's about. That's why I want to go out. And when we do catch those big fish, I'm not the person to be like, oh no, we don't need a photo. I'm like capture every second of this. I want to see like water rolling off of its back as it's breathing underwater. And I want to see a fin come up and have the sun hit it. So for me, it's sort of, it's two different things where like, I can't really relate the actual painting process with fly fishing other than probably frustration of like wanting to be a lot better than I am. Um, but no, that's where the, the connection really, really happens for me is when I can get really passionate about seeing this incredible creature. And I'm so grateful that we got to spend a moment with it. That's the coolest. It. That's the coolest part about it is like just the experience and the story and that part, that timing that you get to live in their world or be a part of it, or you come together with that part of nature, I think is yeah. why hunting and fishing is so prolific in our minds my mind is like i 
I said this before, but I get, you know, talked about a lot when I'm with people hunting, like they, they'll say things to me, like, why don't you call the shot sooner? Why aren't you calling the shot more? We should have killed them on that pass. And, and I look at it more like, yeah, we could have, and we might have, we might lose them they might never come back. But I just, something was telling me just like in your, in your fly fishing mind, like something's telling me if I cast it over there and I drifted to there and I got next to that rock that something was going to happen. Well, I always tell myself like, if I do this, or if I let, you know, them hunt us up and I let them be the wild animals that they are, we're going to see true magic here because the majesty of a mallard duck cutting the wind and working a decoy spread just, you know, and you, and I think there's a maturity process in fishing. You probably get the grip and grin phase that you go through. Look at my fish. You hold it way out there, you you, you know, and that, and that's important. And that's, and that, I think that it's all a maturity process that you go through in, in life to where, um, you know, you get to the point to where killing a limb, it's not the important part. It's more about the campfire and the music, even though killing them still awesome and eating them still awesome. You start to realize how much, you know, validity is in so many more parts of the fishing excursion and, or the hunt. But I, but I still think that the therapy that it provides, if it's, if it's giving you that peace of mind, that's what, if you're a believer in God or whatever creator you choose to believe in, that is what those fish were put on this earth to do. It's all about the ecosystem and the sustainability of our land and our waters that we are hunters and gatherers and fishers and we were put on this earth to provide so if we choose to stay within our legal means of taking that fish for a bounty and eating it then we can do that fly fishing fly fishing probably back when i back when 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 uh you know when i was running with dave john david's dad um in con you know when we were all running the contest trail and dave had his had his shop at that time i that was kind of my first um that was my first look in of what, what do you mean catch and release? Like every bumper sticker in the fly shop and everything Dave would talk about. And John Dave, it would be like, we don't keep fish. We catch them and we release them. And I'm like, well, we, we, we eat the, we eat the fish that we catch kind of attitude. Right. So both sides are right. And since then I understand catch and release and catch it again down the road. People question that. Do you injure the fish? Do they go off and die anyway? No, the survival rate's very high, but there's a lot of different ways. Practices, right? Yeah. 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 You got to do things right. You got to handle things right. Um, But I just think that, that that everybody has their reasoning and their approach for why they want to do something. And I think that social media is so funny because they can say, we've never had access to people like this. So I could literally go on your social media right now while I'm on this meeting with this podcast with you. I could go onto your social media from another device and tell you that you are the worst painter that I've ever seen in my life and hit send and then feel good about myself that I just made you like that. That's what social media allows us to do. Like that's not, that's not what it, that's not what it's intended for. It's not, it can't be, it can't be to, to belittle something or to talk down on somebody because they, they preach. Now with that being said, if I went onto your social media or John David's and I saw you guys, disrespecting the research throwing the fish up in the air throwing it out and letting it hit its head on the rock or or like whipping its tail really hard in the air and just getting a funny video of that fish's reaction then i would say hey and i don't even know if i would type this but if i ever met you i'd say look man we got to respect the resource right absolutely that is so so important and very very early into my fly fishing i don't want to say career because that makes it sound like i'm doing it professionally and i did dip my toes in the water of that for a little bit but that's on hold for now um but very very early on when i was really starting to take fly fishing seriously i had somebody who i really really looked up to and respected um kind of totally freak out and embarrass me on the river for fish handling practices And I mean, like I said before, I grew up in a family where nobody was an angler. I mean, we're fishing for for pike and you'd have to like work to kill a pike, basically. They're they're just so hardy. Um, And so I had no idea that you couldn't keep a fish out of the water for very long until I started getting positive feedback. You know, it just it just took my now family explaining to me, okay, so the mortality rate increases by X amount 
per second that you keep that fish out of the water. And once I started hearing the research and then actually sort of diving into it and researching it for myself, I kind of got to a point where now I, depending on the fish, I don't even really want to lift them out of the water because why? When we can get these super cool photos with them in the water. Why, why even pull them out? I don't need to, but you know, I definitely went through a phase of where I wanted that cool photo and I wanted to be, you know, cool on social media. And I wanted people to see that I was catching these awesome fish. I was so proud of myself that I was, you know, just going so hard and so far out of my way. I, to give you some idea, my, my fishing, uh, experience was essentially to catch beautiful trout. I had to travel three hours to Calgary. So I would wake up at about four o'clock in the morning and I would drive to Calgary, sometimes three o'clock in the morning, drive to Calgary, pick up the boat, pick up my friend. Sometimes usually, um, we would go launch the boat, do like between six and six and 12 hours of floating and, uh, you know, clean up, wash the boat, put it away, drive home. So we're looking at by the time all is said and done, my average day was over 20 hours and I'm rowing the entire time. So yeah, when that was going on and I was really new into it and learning everything, every fish I caught, I was so proud if they were big and I wanted a photo of them, but, and that's where we need to be kind to each other. That's, that's what I learned from my experience of being shamed publicly and having somebody sort of attack me on the water when I truly didn't know any better. For me, if you, if you see somebody that's mistreating the resource, it's so easy to just go up to them from a place of kindness, like you said, and say like, Hey, you know, here's, here's why we need to do things differently. And if you come from a place of giving a, a damn about what's going on and giving a damn about the person you're, you may have just changed this person for life on their fish handling practices or maybe unsafe shooting techniques or whatever it may be. But I find if you come from a place of, you know, compassion, people are going to listen to you most of the time. Some people are going to, you know, want to throw you in the river. Other people. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I think, I think you're onto something. I think that compassion is key. I think that patience is, was a virtue that took me forever to develop and I'm still developing daily. I'm trying to become a more compassionate, sweeter, patient, person that's not just driven, driven, driven foot on the gas all the time. And I, my daughter has really helped me with that part of my life of slow down, you know, and, yeah. and, and pumping the brakes. But I think that in anything that if you shame somebody, all you're going to do is being condescending or shaming somebody, talking down to somebody because they are, might not necessarily be doing things the way you do them, um, or they don't believe in the things that you believe in, or they they try to, you know, they 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 have a different set of values, whatever. I think that education, compassion, and the way that you present it is everything. I think it's key in any talk, negotiation. And again, we're humans. We lose our temper. We get angry. We develop anxiety. We get frustrated. We have tempers. We, th this is all natural. And I I think that knowing that our brains work like that, right? Like the way that the human brain works or has the tendency to work or the potential to work then, well, yeah, maybe, maybe I do, maybe there is a temper in me, but it's how you learn to control that temper and learn how to use it to, you know, offset other things. Like if you feel yourself getting temperamental, then that's time to show your patience and let patience kick in, pump the brakes, go slow down, take a deep breath. Don't send that heated text. Don't go rip Allie's ass because she was handling the fish the right, the wrong way in the, in the, in the river or the current. And now you may, you may make a friend. You may, you may have the ability to be a, 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 a inspiration to that person. They might look up to you after that. So I think that as much as sometimes we want to be like, look, you need to know better. You need to know this before you even start. Well, that's, that might be because we had a better mentor. That might be because I was brought up the right way. Like somebody can't tell me that I don't understand how to respect ducks because I was brought up by my dad and then Dave Stanley and John David and, and, and my uncle Mel and different people in life that taught me at an early age. So I had the advantage. I knew what was expected of me as a hunter gatherer provider. Well, maybe somebody that didn't have that mentorship growing up, it's easy for us to assume they did because we did. Well, let me tell you, like 90% of this country doesn't when it comes to the outdoors. Very, right. very few of us hunt in this country, maybe 8%, 10%, if that. There might be, there might be 
30 million hunters. I doubt it. Yeah, I doubt it. So if you think of a country that has 330 million people in it and barely any of us hunt, then we got to be the voice. Now, more of us fish for sure, but we got to be a, a, a dedicated, strong voice and strong influence that has compassion yeah. and has the ability to educate because educate, if you're going to be an anti, if you're going to be a hater, at least do it with dignity and hate with education The where you're not just doing it on emotion. You can't have, I had a big podcast with Safari club and we talked about, about biology balloting, you know, like the, bi, the, the, the biologics of what happens at the ballot and you do it out of emotion and you do it out of spite. You do it out of grief and, and you can't do that. You do, you get educated and it's our job to educate. So that guy, my point in saying all of that was to say this, that guy mm-hmm. or whoever shamed you should have been ashamed of himself for potentially damaging your confidence to where you would have said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And that would have been a shame because you brought a lot of beauty to the fishing world through your art. And that guy had no idea what talents you bestowed. So he was just acting out of ego, probably more than likely ego. I think it was an honest, just frustration of seeing a, a, a fish be mishandled. And I've been there. I mean, I haven't, I haven't ever attacked somebody because of, because of what I went through, but I have felt that rage when, especially when we're steelhead fishing and I see somebody mistreat a steelhead, it's, it's so gut wrenching to watch. And, you know, the biggest thing is that, that really, really taught me how to talk to people. So I actually, it's a really long story that I won't even go into, but we've been seeing the same group of people year after year on the same river mishandle steelhead. And it's been a really, really difficult thing for me to try and navigate because we have a lot of friends on the river and we know who they stay with. And you want to be really careful to not, you know, insult somebody or cause like a huge dramatic fight on the river. So I, you know, gently spoke to the person that was rowing and said, how was your day today? And they were like, Oh man, it sucked. We caught 11 steelhead all day. And I'm like, we don't catch 11 steelhead between five of us in a week. <laughs> and you had a bad day because they're conventional fishing worms. And so their success rate is, astronomically higher. And, um, I just kind of said to him, you know, like every, every fish that I see here, man, it changes my life. Like it's a really big deal. Have you ever thought about how special 11 fishes? Like I know steelhead fishermen that haven't seen 11 fish in a year, you know, they're, they're going extinct and it's just so important to take care of them. And he kind of looks at me and he's like, what what do you mean? I was like, man, I don't want to tell you what to do, but just try and keep them in the water and don't let them bang their head off the rocks. And he just looked at me like, I've never thought of that. And so that was cool because, you know, I don't even know how big of a fisherman this guy was, but we just, we had this really nice conversation and I saw a small change happen. It'll be interesting to see if we run into them again next year, if he has maybe changed some practices and it's really hard being a woman and going up to a man who's significantly older than you and not being egotistical and be, Oh, I saw you mishandle it because you don't want that energy. So I think it's, it's just so important, you know, when you become a passionate angler or hunter, you unfortunately bestow this massive responsibility to give it down. If you're going to take from the resource, you have to give back. And it doesn't matter what that looks like. You know, it doesn't matter if it's donating to conservation. It doesn't matter if it's painting. It doesn't matter if it's getting children into the sport and teaching them why it's so important, but you owe it. You owe it to give back at some point. And like what you're doing with the podcast. I mean, there's so many people that are going to hear all of these different opinions and all of your different guests, and they're going to learn how to blow calls differently. And they're going to learn different hunting tactics. And there's a sense of unity there. And when a piece of land or a river system or whatever becomes endangered, guess who's going to fight for those resources? It's us. Yep, it's us. I agree hundred yeah. percent. It's very well said. And get back though about um, your love of the river. And I, this is going to lead into where I really want to talk to you about was your painting, but what besides the peacefulness and the sanctity of the river, 
are you a competitor? Are you, are you hunting that fish? Not out of disrespect or out of, you know, just like this overall that I'm going to win, but are you hunting that fish? Because fly fishing to me is hunting. You're hunting that fish. You're in its, its home. You're going into its home. You are matching the hatch. You are trying to strategically, you're not just throwing out there with a worm and a bobber, which is fine too. And we all did that as kids. And that's great to get people involved in, in fishing, but in fly fishing is a completely different animal than conventional fishing. Um, are you competitive, Allie? Are you a perfectionist? Are you driven to the point to where nothing was going to stop you? Do you love the art of the cast? Are you are, are you a, a supreme caster now? Can you match the hatch with the best of them? Can you tie flies with your artistic ability? What are the other attributes of the fly fishing process and experience that turn you into this, this person that has to be on the water? That's a really interesting question. Um, and it's kind of, I have a, a couple answers for it. Um, if I'm being completely honest, I am almost embarrassed of how competitive I am. I, I didn't even, I never identified as a competitive person until I met John David and he just laughs all the time. Oh yeah, you're not competitive Valley while I'm throwing a tantrum about something that's not working out. I, I am so driven. I've always said I'm like a shark. Like if I stop moving, I'll die. I, I am just all in. If I, if I, if I'm interested in something, I'm not, you know, half-assing it even a little bit. I'm, I'm all the way there. So, um, in some aspects, yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm out and, and especially depending on the species of fish, steelheading is, is a little bit less of like the vibe of hunting because it's more of a relaxed, you know, we, we swing flies, right. We're, we're two hand fishing and, uh, there's like this, this total different connection there where it's a little bit less competitive, but man, if you go a few days without hooking a fish, yeah, it's, it gets pretty competitive and it definitely turns into a hunt. And every time I'm mending, I'm trying to picture like, okay, here's where I think the fish is and here's how I want my fly to be presented. And I want to, you know, like pop it at the end here, just in case he's following it. And I'm really, really laser focused after a few days of not catching fish, but um, with trout fishing, with other kinds of even salt fishing, it's hundred percent. You are hunting them. I mean, tarpon fishing was, I have never had that much adrenaline. I don't think in my life. It's, it's incredible. Your heart is just beating out of your chest as you see this giant creature about to come up and they look at your fly and they wait a second before they take it. And man, it is totally just like hunting. Um, but yeah, you know, as far as, um, tying flies goes, actually it, interestingly enough, I tied flies before I ever even cast a fly rod. Um, not well at all. I didn't even follow a pattern. It's, it's hilarious looking back on the photos, but that was sort of one way that I was really interested in getting into fly fishing. Um, I don't tie flies now and it's not because I don't want to, or, um, you know, cause I'm not interested in it. I think it's beautiful, but to be completely honest, we have this groove, especially being married. It, it, we have this really cool groove where it's like John David ties the flies. We out, go out and fish together. We take photos together and then I paint the photos. And so while I'm painting, he's tying flies. And so we've got this little loft and it's all like moody lighting. And, and we just kind of hang out up there and we listen to acoustic music and we jam out together and I'm painting and he's tying flies and he comes over and shows me like, I'll oh, check out this fly. And I'm like, I'm going to steal that later. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he compliments my paintings or he says like, Hey, just so you know, like there was one spot on this little mallard here where these little feathers kind of came out funny. And he's like, Hey, I would just move that feather just back, just a hair. So he's, he's such an asset to my paintings because he sees them all the time. He sees the birds all the time in person. And, uh, so I haven't gotten into tying flies just because I have this other sort of creative outlet. And then there's, for me, there's as much pride catching a magnificent fish on a fly that my husband or my father-in-law has tied for me and given to me as a gift. That's just as gratifying as it awesome. would be power to tie the fly. And it's really fun too, because then 
you know, I get to send pictures to them when I'm not with them and send a picture of the fly in the fish's mouth and be like, check this out. Like, thank you for the gift. So when you start this artistic deal that you do, and, and I love how fired up you're getting, and I know that you love giving your artist gifts, and I've seen a lot of your art, and the people can find your art right now on Instagram. You can see a lot of it. It's at Allie Beck Stanley, right? Yeah. A-L-L-E-Y. Yeah, A-L-L-E-Y-B-E-C-K. B-E-C-K Stanley. And check out this artwork. But when you, the artwork is so good, like in my opinion, and I know that I'm not the end all of art, it's just so awesome to see, um, you know, how realistic it truly is, how you make it come to life. And what, when you start, you know, like when you start, when you walk up on a river and you have your fly rod, you start to visualize. You're like, yeah, I see this. I see the lay of this. I see the flow of here. Here's the steel water. Here's the moving water. Here's the current. It's a little bit faster in this area. When you walk up to that blank canvas behind you, and obviously that one's mallards, but let's, let's talk about your real, your real true passion is painting fish. Um, like that bass behind you, right on the top of your head. What do you have a, a technique or a, a, um, do you stay within the same parameters every time you start a painting? Do you start with a habitat or do you start with an eye? Do you start with a fin? Do you start with a gill? Do you start with a lip? Is it always the same or are you inconsistent in your in, in the beginning parts of the painting? Because consistently when you walk up to water as a fly fisherman, you you really have a routine that you go through of all of your checkpoints that you check off, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so it really depends on the painting. Um, if I'm if I'm hitting any kind of artist's block, that's when I get into like these really crazy, funky, abstract deals. Like up there, I just learned how to do um, the background on that bass uh, just a couple weeks ago. Actually, it's a new technique that I'd never even tried before. Um, so if I'm if I'm in a place where I'm blocked or I'm not really sure what I'm going to paint, that's when I get into these funky things. And so I'll I'll do the background first and then I let the painting come to me and then I decide, okay, I think birds need to live on that or a bear or whatever. I, I see this and this is what I want to live on this canvas. But if I'm doing a black and white or like a photorealism or a watercolor or a, a specific gift for somebody, um, it always starts with a sketch always because I am not the kind of person that can just free paint. Well, um, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that, but I've never tried. And I think my brain would just lock up like all the gears would stop. Um, I need to have like some kind of direction a little bit. So I always start with a sketch and then, um, yeah, I start with the eye every single time. The wow, eye, I, didn't, eye. I had no idea yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. And I, I don't know why I do that. I just, I'm sort of obsessed with, with the eye. Like I, I find some paintings, um, particularly a fish will sort of give me the ooh, feeling and I don't, I can never figure out why. And John David is every time he's like, it's the eye. It needs white or something right here, or it's, it's too gray right here. And whether it's my work or somebody else's, if it's mine and I can change it, that the the tarpon that I did for Tommy Sabini, I looked at it for a week before I posted it and was like, man, that fish just looks just a little dead to me. And John David was like, yeah, I think you could use a little more black in the eye. So I redid the eye and boom, there's the whole painting. It's ready to go. It's done. And so for me, I think that starting point, it's like the most exciting sort of crucial point of the painting for me. So I always want to get that out first. And then the rest of it, I'm, I get excited about because the eye looks so good. So where do you find yourself and, and when does it happen to where in taxidermy painting art of wildlife, anatomics is everything. Posture is everything. Um, induct, induct taxidermy feather, the thickness of the neck, the color of the feet, the color of the bill, the color of the eyes, the, the fluffiness in a duck's head, his like what John David said on the painting is flight feathers and, and anything that is on that duck of, of that you can, you know, make out with the human eye when you watch them in nature so much, you become obsessed with perfectionism and I, and you get that out of your, and you've, I'm not saying that you think you're perfect. I'm saying that through your life, you have developed this sense of perfectionism that you want to achieve in fly fishing in motherhood in raising your kids and making a home and making a, a painting, everything you do, you don't, uh, you don't shortcut yourself at all. You don't cut corners. And that's a very 
big time advantage to have in life. And a lot of people miss out on that because cutting corners or half-assing is okay as long as they get somewhere in life and, 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 or they, they get a little bit of a means of relief out of it or, you know, approval out of it or whatever they're looking for, searching for. But when you're painting and you're dealing with ducks and you're dealing with fish and you are putting your painting out there to be critiqued, like it's one thing just to to be an artist of like, well, I see it this way. And and in art, you can get away with that sometimes, right? Like, well, this is the way the artist sees it. And this is the art gallery that we're going to display all of these paintings tonight. And boom, and that's fine. But when you start dealing with fish and you're a perfectionist like you, when do you start seeing like, man, I got to figure out the anatomics of a fish. Where, how does the belly roll over? What are the angles of a belly? How does the belly roll into this part of the tail? What are the fins doing here? Do you find yourself like, like just opening book after book after book and studying fish to become a a fish Nazi, a fish nerd. And you can tell me everything about these different species that you specialize in your paintings. Or did it come with just being on the river and putting your hands on a fish underwater or catching them and living in their world that you develop this sense of like, Man, if I like, it would be like me or John David, like opening up a taxidermy studio and being able to actually apply our vision of a mount. It'd be like John David being able to apply his vision of those mallards on canvas. But I don't know if John David can. And there, him and his dad, are, I know his dad's got good artistic value. I don't know if John David can paint or draw. He might be able to. I couldn't. I would draw a stick duck, right? So <laughs> when when do you when do you start to figure that out? Because if I was a good artist, I could draw a good duck or mount a good duck if I was a good taxidermist. Because I understand what they're supposed to look like. Right. So does that make sense what I'm asking? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of both there. I have definitely done a lot of research. I still research all the time. I mean, whether it's looking at beautiful photos, I have some very favorite photographers, some fish photographers in particular. And I mean, I have a lot of waterfowl photographers in my life too. And when you get to really, really study how they see the animal, that's, that's one aspect. And, and, um, you know, you get to see how different scales look in different sunlights and, and how different feathers look in different lights. And, um, that's, that's a part of it. But I would say for me, um, it's more like you were saying about spending time with them. Um, you know, the more that I, catch fish, the more that I want them to look perfect, the more that it it matters to me so much that I have another person at some point, they don't even need to tell me it's not for me. It's for the fish, which sounds so hippy dippy and hilarious coming out of my mouth. But for me, it's, it's my way of giving back. And, um, I guess I want it to look just perfect. You know, I want it to look the scales to really, really pop in the way that they should. And I want to, I mean, that fish had to have a hook in its mouth and it had to fight and that sucks. You know, I'm not, I'm not ignorant. I know what I'm doing. I know it's in some people's mind, it's a blood sport. You you do even with perfect handling, you're still going to kill about 2% of the fish you catch. I'm not ignorant to that. And so I guess it's sort of my way of saying thank you in the most hippie way possible where, you know, I just spend time with this fish for a moment and it's, you know, it's in the water the whole time, usually in a rubber net so that we're not, you know, taking any of the slime off of it or anything. And man, if it wasn't hard on the fish, I would keep it there for hours and just stare at it because I swear every movement you notice something different you know, if you could spend two minutes really, really studying a beautiful fish that you catch, they're all so different. It doesn't matter what water system you're in. And that's what's so interesting is different water makes the same species of fish look so different. So it's, it's really important to me to sort of nail it. And that's why I get so crazy. And I say that I want to burn half of my canvases because I'm looking at it and my girlfriends are telling me, Allie, that's amazing. I don't know what your problem is. I would literally buy that from you today. And I'm like, the scales are wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I have to go back and I have to do it a dozen times sometimes until it's right. But that's, it's really important, you know, to me to sort of nail it. And, and then there are times too, where I, it's not that I don't care that it's not perfect, but if I'm doing one of my more sort of funky paintings, there are definitely times where things are not perfectly anatomical and 
I like it. Like it looks sweet. It looks different. And I'm okay with that. But I usually, that's not like a photorealism experience. And I'm not like giving back to a specific memory or trying to, you know, recreate or relive a specific memory. It's more like this would look really cool on a tarpon. So I'm going to, you know, kind of mess with it a little bit and either I like it or I don't, but yeah, that's pretty much the best answer I can give. On no, that. I think it's, I think it's great. I think that your whole analogy of, of the, the, the net and the slime and the time spent, and then your compassion for the fish to where you're actually apologizing almost when you don't yeah. need to, I hope you don't think you need to of being a fisher woman, a fisher that can take, that can do what you do and spend time with that fish and then be able to, to, two percent that adds up it really does but it's not an apology it's more like an intense gratitude a really really intense gratitude you know we we keep a lot of the fish that we catch we we don't keep trout um and not because we're above it um just because we are so blessed that living in alaska we get to catch as much salmon as any family can eat throughout the course of the year so I, i just personally like the taste of salmon more um, they're very, very plentiful where we are. Um, we actually, we harvest pinks as well. There are millions of pinks that come into the river. So, you know, um, maintaining a, a proper balance and not taking more than you're entitled to, whether it's by law or, you know, there's some people that come, they, they take their, they take their limit every single day of the season and that's okay. They're, they're allowed to, but for me, I could never eat that much fish in sort of like an eight, nine, 10 month window. And after that, your freezer makes it taste different to me. It's just not as good. So we keep what we know that we're going to eat until the season is going to start up again. And so, you know, we do, we, we keep some of the fish and, and I'm, I'm not above that. I think it's, it's a really, really important thing to be talking about because so many people do look down on, on keeping fish or hunting animals, but they'll go to a grocery store and they'll purchase meat because they truly don't think that there's anything wrong with that because they're so disconnected from their food source. And that's where it becomes so important to educate people and let them know the steak that you're eating, it may have been treated humanely or, you know, the piece of pork, but it may not have been, you don't know where it came from. You don't know where it was slaughtered. I do. I know exactly the animals that we are consuming or the fish that we're consuming. I know how healthy they were. I know how quickly and humanely they were put down. I know that we harvested virtually every inch of the animal that's even possible to harvest because I'm crazy. And my husband thinks I'm a total nut bar because I'm constantly thinking of new ways and new recipes to utilize more of the resource. But have you, have you ever, have you ever cooked a, a fish skeleton down for broth? Have you ever, do you use the bones for any of this, uh, for that time? That's what I'm really wanting to get into, um, right now before it was sort of, For me, I didn't really know that you could utilize so much of a fish. Um, And so for me, my way of making sure that we were using every part of the fish was to get those fillets absolutely perfect so that there's no meat left on the bones. And then we were throwing the carcasses back in the river because there's so many different species that feed off of the salmon. And And it is really important to throw carcasses back because salmon feed... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read a study through National Geographic about five or six years ago that actually started my obsession with salmon, um, that they feed more species on planet Earth than any other species. So they're as important as bumblebees. So for me, throwing a salmon carcass back in the river feels okay. There's still like an ethical, you know, justification there for me where I know that I'm still um, sort of keeping it in balance. Right. And, and other species are still going to thrive off of it. But with that said, um, I think it was with meat eater, I believe it was April Vokey that wrote the, the publishing. I I don't, and I I might be wrong on that, but I, I believe April Vokey through meat eater, um, just wrote like a, a short, 
book on how to utilize the whole fish. And so in there, there is, I mean, she is teaching people how to make fish leather. She is giving recipes on how to blend down fish eyeballs and make different pastes. And like John, David and Sam are going to hate me this summer because I am all in, man. I want to try it all. But uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't been able to experiment too much so far, but that's the direction I want to go in. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's the coolest thing, man, is the sustainability that that fish comes full circle and the ones that you don't catch, a bear might catch it and it feeds that bear. That bear goes on to feed somebody maybe through a harvest or um, natural selection. And then that bear, that the the skeleton of that, that salmon goes back in the river to feed other species in that river. I mean, it's just a cool, cool life. I, I just, I talk about it all the time is that you know, to, to be able to document it in TV is what we are, have become proficient at and good at. And I, I'm, I'm humbled by that. And I'm so happy that we get to do that because I had a podcast, um, earlier this week with a, with a three star, four star Admiral in our United States Navy that's fought for our freedoms for years. And to know that, we that I have a friendship with this man because of hunting in the outdoors and what it does for me there. That's part of the whole the whole sustainability deal is that my friendships and my nurturing is through the outdoors. Like I have made so many great conversations or great friendships or great just the romance that I have with so many guys and girls in the right way and not, you know, of the romance of the land. Right. And and then, and then to be able to document that and have footage of it um, for years to come to pass down to generations of one time I was in Arkansas and I got to hunt with this four-star Admiral and that he, he was a Navy SEAL team six member. And then to be able to have that and have Drake White and camp with the singing and, and whoever it was, it's just like, and then to be able to put those fish bones back in the river, it's, it comes full circle circle and I document it. You paint it. John David ties it. April writes about it. Steven Ranella writes about it. Everybody's adding to, you know, into that melting pot of all of these different theories and ideologies that go into it. And the people that say, well, you shouldn't take a fish out of water. They have a right to say that that's fine, but at least respect the other people that might, you know, that might be doing it for another reason. As long as you have respect for that resource, then that's my biggest thing is that respect for the resource is key in everything that we do and to understand that everything comes with a cost and that even your vegetarians and your vegans and your and and your people that eat chicken and pork and fish that they're that they bought from and 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 uh actual beef that they buy from Costco or somewhere, they do need to know where it comes from. And we do as hunters. And then in this time during this quarantine and stuff, it's really cool to go into our freezer. And Dave and Dave was, was cooking duck the other night and he sent me a picture because I'm trying to do these new rubs. I've been trying, I've been working with this mixologist about man and Sam Sabini was helping me and Tom Sabini was helping me. So now we have, yeah. So now we have all these rubs, right? And Dave takes them and he writes me back all these notes. The red one's this, it's fabulous. This, and then he shows me, this is how good it was. And he shows me the plate after they're done him and Kate. So then I was like, all right, we're on to something there. So now we're able to give back to that and our passion for cooking, right. And showing and documenting recipes on how to make more people confident with their wild game. And you're able to, okay. you're able to, it's so important because people constantly say to me, Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't eat that because I, I can't stand the taste of deer. or I can't stand the taste of whatever animal it is. And John David will come to, Alberta and cook. We, we usually save a certain amount of goose meat and he'll cook these mounds of goose poppers for a huge group of people. And they always get me eaten. Every single goose popper is gone by the end of the party. And people are like, that beef was amazing. I'm like, <laughs> No, man, it was goose. You just haven't had goose cooked properly. It's not gross. People are like, oh, I don't, I don't eat goose. I don't like the way it tastes, blah, blah, blah. It, man, it's just because you don't know. You haven't been taught how to cook it properly. Yep. So that's so important. That's, that's another like full circle thing that you can do when you have, when you're in a position like you, where you have all of this, this reach where you can share these recipes with people and then they'll share them with people. And then all of a sudden we were watching a documentary recently where, um, the the man who was talking said, nothing that's ever been farmed has gone extinct. And that hit us both really hard because it's like, well, yeah, because there's a demand for it. So you won't let it die essentially. So I think the bigger that we can make the demand, whether it's 
you know, sustainable harvest or whatever. I'm not saying, you know, everybody should be out there hunting. If you're not a hunter, that's okay. It's no judgment, but I guess like coming to a place where we all understand that hunting is often the more ethical way to go and that it can be delicious. You know, it it can be amazing with the right recipes. I agree. And I think, I think another, you know, we have the ability to get your story out there. I think you're very well spoken, Ali Beck. I think you have an awesome talent, awesome view on life. I think John David is very lucky to have somebody support his lifestyle the way that you do, because John David is a freak when it comes to hunting and fishing and living the lifestyle full throttle. The dude is an absolute badass when it comes to understanding birds and communication and big game and where they live and, and how to go into their homes and, and, and get, you know, in bed with them and that's i think it's a special bond i i I think that it's awesome that you guys have come together hearing the story about the loft and the mood lighting and the in the reggae music going off and the acoustic music and and you guys tying flies and painting and drinking a beer or a glass of wine and and then and raising your kids in this environment it's awesome it needs to be stories like that the reason i want to talk to you is that when i when i I heard something in your voice because i haven't got to spend a whole lot of time with you and usually it's during a barbecue or a ufc fight where everybody's you know a little bit more live lively and playing pool or whatever cornhole but when I heard you talking a couple weeks ago I was like man that girl has got a lot of substance then I confirmed that with Dave and he's like oh yeah trust me she's really special so I think that stories like that when people hear them I think that you have the ability to do more of getting that out there that influence out there so your art needs to be out there because people deserve to see it like I say that about about music I just got a a message from Drake White he just texted me because he's got new music coming out and we're working on some things together yesterday I had a long conversation with Brent Cobb who is one one of my favorite musicians Leith Lofton and I'm so passionate about their music because I truly feel that the world deserves to hear it so I think and, and we have a platform that we can get it out there to not everybody but if we get it out to our platform and then maybe steven ranella here hers here's one song and he goes man that's good and then he gets it out to his platform and then ali beck hears it and gets it out to her platform by the by that time it's like that old coca-cola commercial like i'd like to buy the world to coke and teach him how to sing right it's like that so then your artwork deserves to be seen that the story needs to be heard because i'd like my daughter to hear the story about about how struggles can turn in my daughter was frustrated today nine years old kids want to be together this quarantine has them going back crazy they're just going crazy they're cooped up they have no socializing going on right now and she has a little touch of asthma so we're really protecting her lungs and her respiratory system so it's i got to sit there and explain to her like look we're all going through this this is a tough time so your story can be very intriguing to other not just women not just girls but men about taking your passion to the next level about how important it is to stand in a river how lucky we are to be in north america canada or the continental united states you're lucky you get to spend a lot of time in both plus Alaska. So you're living the dream life. Congratulations on that. Let's get on here and do another one. Maybe what I would like to do is I'd like to do an interactive one where we watch you paint. But I, then I started thinking like we need to do a hunt together this fall to where we could, we could time-lapse a painting in the lodge or whatever while you're there. And then at the end of the hunt, we see the full, you know, the finished painting and then we see the finished hunt and then we eat ducks. But I do want to do that painting of the Traeger with the ducks on it. Please. Let's talk about that. Text me and I'll text me and I'll get you some details on that. And then I would like to buy one of these duck pieces and a fish piece. And then just tell everybody how they can find Is your art for sale right now? Can people commission you right now? Can, can they buy your art right now? So, um, I I could do commissions right now, but, um, being Canadian, I actually just to make sure that I'm staying within all of the guidelines that I'm given. Um, I believe I have to just bring my art back to Canada, which we're probably going to do in the next month or so. And then I can kind of deal with sales and stuff like that. Um, so eventually, um, short answer. Yes. Um, but, um, yeah, I just gotta get back to Canada. So, (laughs) well, I am. I want to get the word out there and I want people to understand how, how badass it is. The paintings are so cool. Go check her out at Allie, A-L-L-E-Y Beck Stanley on Instagram. Do you have Facebook too? Um, I don't really use Facebook. Okay. Good. So Instagram. Get a website up and going this year because I've really transitioned into really taking my art seriously. And I think it's probably time to, you know, move into that and, and get a real website going. But, um, yeah, right now it's mostly just Instagram keeping things pretty, pretty low key right now. I didn't want to kind of get too much on my plate before I was ready for it. So, 
All right, I can help you out that. We'll talk offline. That's Allie Beck Stanley. Check her out on Instagram, at Allie Beck Stanley. Commissioner, get a painting. She's badass. She can outfish you, outpaint you, but that's not what she's doing it for. But trust me, she can. Her husband, John David, could outhunt you, guaranteed, and outkill you. He's the best there is. Goose collar, duck collar, turkey collar, mouth collar. He's the man. He also knows how to golf, play soccer, cook. He's very good with kids. He loves to hug. So if you ever see John David, be prepared to get a hug. This has been another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. Allie, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was so great to talk to you. Heck yeah, we'll do it again. Tom, hit that button. This is Leith Lofton, written by Drake White. Leith Lofton, what are you going to do when the money's all gone? Please continue to support the partners and sponsors that support us. Again, this episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody was brought to you by our friends at Jack Daniels. Thank you all so much. We're all equal, that's what I think. I don't believe even has a bank. Make good use of your time on earth. Don't make a dollar bill all this world Cause I'd rather be poor living off in a hole Than rich as hell without a soul Life on